You're listening to the weekly podcast with Pastor Steve McCoy from 360 Church in Sarasota, Florida. We hope this message inspires you to press beyond ordinary. We're in a series um, right now called Where God Is. And uh, this is a great series. Last week, Pastor Steve kicked it off. And uh, the idea that we talked about last week is that God is with the broken. That's where God is. And wherever God is, that's where we want to find ourselves uh, as individuals. And today, what we're going to look at the fact is that God is in pursuit that's where God is. I want to encourage you as we journey through um, our, our conversation today that you would uh, take out your phones and text the word "seen" to 97,000. You can find the message notes there and, and follow along with uh, what's happening because I really do believe that God's Spirit's going to speak to us. And as we follow along, as we take some notes, uh, that God will use it in our lives uh, at a later time, later this week, as we kind of apply what we talk about. So today we're going to talk about the fact that God is in pursuit. Um, and it's going to look, we're going to look at Luke chapter 15 and what you'll see in this portion of scripture just prior to this, Jesus is talking about somewhat of what we talked about so far in this baptism celebration today. It's about the cost of discipleship. And Jesus is saying, if you're really going to follow me, you got to be all in. Like you can't give us just, you know, halfway in and halfway out. You got to be all in. And Jesus is saying is you got to be willing to forsake everything else in life and keep me the prime focus of your life. Now, have you guys ever recognized this? It is so easy for us to lose focus in life. Man, it's so easy, right, to be distracted by things that we ultimately lose focus. And what I have discovered, and maybe you have as well, is that whenever I lose focus, it always leads to frustration later on down the road. If I stop focusing on my marriage the way that God wants me to focus on my marriage, ultimately it'll lead me to a place of frustration. If I stop focusing on my children or my occupation or when I stop focusing on something, it can ultimately lead us to a place of frustration. And what we're trying to do in this series is really in many ways kind of clear off the windshield of our lives because sometimes life circumstances and situations can kind of cloud up that windshield. And what we want to do is just clean it up a little bit so that we can get a clear perspective on the vision that God has for our lives because we want to be doing the Lord's work. And what we know is, is that God has already in scripture told us the things that he wants us to be involved in. And if we follow after the things that God tells us that he wants us to be involved in, it will lead us to a place of great success in life. And what I love about, uh, well, let me just read a quote here. Oliver Berkman said it this way. He said, uh, what will your life have been in the end, but the sum total of everything you spent it focused on? That's what you're going to be at the end. But how many of you know that life can be distracting sometimes, right? Throw some technology into that, right? Throw some, some uh, responsibilities into that. And then before you know it, you find yourself distracted. Uh, in fact, I was reading a, uh, an article this past week, and I heard a uh, recent report uh, found that that's in the work environment that 749 hours a week, or for, for a year, I'm sorry, 749 hours a year are actually hours of distraction, that something happened in your workplace that has just distracted you from the main focus of what you're trying to do. So that's like 20 hours or 20 weeks a year in your workforce, you're distracted. Now, 
Pastor Steve, that does not happen here at 360 Church. I just want to assure you of that, right? We are very focused here, all right? But, but think about this. Distractions can hold us back from the ultimate goal and the vision of what we're trying to accomplish. And what I love about the life of Jesus, Jesus was, it seemed like for whatever reason, just had this laser focus on why he was here and what his mission was. And Jesus didn't get distracted by the lesser things of life from that mission that God had for him. You'll see what that mission is in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Uh, here's what it says. You can see this in your message notes and on the screen. It says, for the Son of Man came to what? To seek and to save. What was he seeking and saving? The lost. The Bible says that Jesus' vision for his life was to seek and to save that which was lost. And what I want us to see this morning as we jump into this Luke chapter 15 portion of scripture that we're going to look through, what Jesus does in Luke chapter 15 is he's giving us a glimpse into the heart of God the Father and how much God loves and cares for lost people. He's giving us a glimpse into the fact that the heart of God is in pursuit of people who don't yet know him. The heart of God has always been about people. Now, you heard this morning that I, um, I'm from Rochester, New York, and uh, one of the places that's about an hour from us that's the seventh wonder, one of the seven wonders of the world is Niagara Falls. How many of you have ever been to Niagara Falls before? Just raise your hand. Hold it up proudly, okay? That's my stomping ground right there, right? Amazing, a beautiful, beautiful place. And what I want to show us this morning is Luke chapter 15 is kind of like Niagara Falls in the sense that this portion of Scripture is gushing out the heart of God for people. It's kind of like the, the, the falls here would be a picture of God's heart and his, his passion and desire for people. In fact, uh, their next picture here is you'll see that there's a boat. Because what you'll do is if you go there to the Canadian side, you can actually um, pay to go on this boat tour. But what I can promise you about this boat tour is the boat just gets close to the mist of the water, but never goes under the water. Because what would happen if that boat went under the water? There you go. It would cease to exist, right? And so the picture that I want to get us today is, is I'm going to pull out for us my red Dixie cup. Now, all of you country people are like, wasn't well, it a red solo cup? No, it's a red Dixie cup this morning, all right? And here's what my prayer has been for you. My prayer has been that you will get a Dixie-sized cup perspective of the heart of God. Now, what I know is if this was a paper Dixie cup and you actually put it underneath the water of the falls, it would destroy the cup instantly. You wouldn't be able to capture even an ounce of water. Maybe with a Dixie cup, you could. But what my heart, my desire this morning is, is that we'll walk away with just a little perspective of the heart of God. I'm not even saying the whole perspective of the heart of God, because I think if we just had this much of God's heart for people, I literally think it would change the way that we live our lives walking out of this place because God absolutely loves and cares about people. And so with that in mind, I want to jump into Luke chapter 15 this morning because what we're going to become aware of is that, that because of God's heart for people, he's in all-out pursuit of lost people. In fact, what I want us to remember is if Jesus is talking about the cost of discipleship, what he's doing now is he's saying it's important. Why is it important? Because of Luke chapter 15. So let's jump into this together. It says here in verse 1 of Luke 15, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners, uh, one translation said, um, 
notorious sinners. And I kind of like that, right? Because if I'm going to be a sinner, at least let me be notorious. You know what I'm saying? Like, I want to be known for being a sinner, right? It says here now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, what does it say, everybody? Muttered, man. They were grumbling, right? This man welcomes notorious sinners and eats with them. And I want to pause for a second before we move forward here, because what Jesus is going to do in this portion of Scripture is he's going to deal with a very toxic perspective that the religious people of the day had. Because the perspective of religious people was this, what I would call an us-them perspective. See, we religious people are thus. We are, are, are us. We're, we're close to the heart of God. But them notorious sinners, those sinful people, well, they're not a part of us. And what was happening was these religious people were actually hurting the heart of people who desperately needed to hear about the heart of God because they were looking down on them. And most of us, we can recognize that because in religion, religion for some reason tends to do that. It separates us from notorious sinful people. But what I love about Jesus is Jesus was never afraid of broken people. Amen, somebody? Jesus was always in the middle of it. And Jesus wasn't, and I would say it this way, phased or directed by the heart of religious people or the heart of other people that didn't have the perspective of God. And guys, what I know is this, is that anytime I try to live for somebody else's approval, instead of living for an audience of one, I get myself in trouble every time. And what happens is I ultimately find myself miserable. Because instead of pleasing God, I try to please man. And anytime I try to please man, it leads me to a place of just brokenness and and I'm miserable because I know that I'll never ultimately be able to please human beings. So my heart has to follow after God. And that's why I'm so proud of all of you that got baptized today. Because taking this step of obedience, it's not easy. And sometimes we'll even have friends and family members that would say, hey, why are you doing that? Like you were baptized as a kid, right? Why would you go against everything that you were taught in your upbringing to get baptized? And the reason for that is because it's out of a heart of obedience to want to follow God. And what I know is that Jesus wasn't phased by the, what I would say, the muttering and the grumbling of religious people around him. Jesus was directed by a heart that beat it after the things of God. And so the, the, here's the deal. In the world that he was with, the perception of the church wasn't a great one, right? And Jesus was trying to give a new perspective of God's heart. And let me tell you here today, if you have been hurt by religion, what I really hope for you today is that you will hear Jesus' heart and his love for you today. Look at this. Here we go. Three stories that Jesus talks about. And again, keep in mind, he's dealing with a toxic perspective, And what I love about Jesus is is that Jesus had the ability to walk into people's worlds because he was a part of their world. Now, remember in this Who campaign that we're talking about, we want to be used by God as indigenous people in the places that we work, we live, and play. I'm not a part of your world. You're not a part of my world for the most part. But wherever we work and live and play, that's where we want to bring Jesus. And what Jesus does is he walks into the world of three different groups of people to give them a perspective. Let's look at the first story. Three profound truths we'll see here this morning. Uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 3. 
And it says, then Jesus told him this parable. He says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? The shepherd is in, in our, in our theme this morning, in pursuit. He's in pursuit of that lost sheep. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there is more, look at this, more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to. And what does scripture say? Repent. So what he's saying is there's, there's a rejoicing that's happening in, in heaven. And what Jesus is doing in this particular story is he's actually touching the heart of men. Because in that culture, it was an agrarian culture. Most of the men were either farmers or shepherds. And what Jesus is doing is he's inserting himself into their world. And what he's telling them is that there's more rejoicing in heaven over one person that finds God than the people who have already found God that are currently in relationship with him. And remember, Jesus was addressing this us-them perspective. So he's trying to give them understanding. Because in the mind and heart of God the Father, there is not an us-them perspective. Because in the heart and mind of God the Father, it is just us. The only distinction between that is, there are some people who have been found, and some people who are still lost. And what Jesus is trying to say is that every single person is a child of God that he loves and he cares deeply about. The problem is, is that there are some lost people that have walked out in their relationship with God and God's heart is hurting for them. And what he doesn't want is for us to have this religious, pious perspective like we've arrived, you're out there, and we're in here. What God is saying is, no, 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 no. In the kingdom of God, it's all us. And there are some children of God who have just not been found yet, and Jesus is trying to give them that right perspective. And when you look at the story, what I love what Jesus is pointing out is, you ought to count things that matter. And how did this like shepherd know that he had a, a sheep that was missing? Well, he knew that he had one of his lost sheep was because he was able to count, right? 97, 98, 99. He gets to this 100 mark, and all of a sudden there is a sheep missing. And because there's a sheep that's missing, he was willing to go out and find that sheep. Now, here's what I love. We count things that matter, right? They matter to us. Like, I know that I don't have somewhere between two and four children. I have four children. Why? Because I'm able to count, and they matter. So I know I have four children, not somewhere between two and four. And what I love about 360 Church is that we are a church that counts and the reason that we count is because we know that every soul matters to the heart of God. That one, one of the greatest highlights we have is on Tuesday morning when we have our staff meeting, we actually have a sheet that counts how many people were here on Sunday morning because you matter. We have another one, another column that's how many people found a relationship with Jesus this week. 
Amen. It's awesome, right? And we celebrate that. We celebrate two, over 220 people that are involved in connect groups and so many more that need to be in connect groups. We celebrate the people that are in small circles, a small circle, and we count those one-to-one relationships. We celebrate that 10 people got baptized or getting baptized this morning because why? They matter to a heart of God who loves them and cares about them and wants a relationship with them. So you count things that matter, don't you? Um, not only you count things that matter, but what, what, here's what you know. When something that, ma- that has value is lost, it changes your focus. So you know when you count and there's something that's missing, it ultimately changes your focus, right? Um, it's a game changer in your life. Um, I remember when my son Josh was roughly six years old, we were at my mom's cottage up in the St. Lawrence Seaway, um, Alexandria Bay. Uh, it's a seaway that overlooks Canada. And my brothers and I were up on top of a roof and we were finishing up on two roofing projects. And we had been on the roof for about seven hours. And my son Josh came to me and he said, hey, he was down on the ground. He's like, hey, daddy. And I'm like, yeah, Josh, what's up? He's like, where's mommy? And I remember thinking in those moments, like, I want to just finish this job. Josh, I don't have time to figure out where mommy is. And I remember saying to him, well, mommy is down at the dock um, by the water. So I didn't hear anything f- for about 30 minutes. And then Becky comes up and she says, hey, Dan, do you know where Josh is? And I'm like, no, I sent him down to the water to see you. And she's like, well, I haven't been at the water. And I'm like, well, I'm not sure where he is. Can you can you go and find him? And she um she came back about five minutes later and she said, Dan, I don't know where Josh is. And I'm like, what do you mean? And then all of a sudden something of value was lost. So I got down off the roof and I began to kind of look around with her. And for the next, it seemed like eternity, but for 45 minutes, we searched to find our son and we couldn't find him. Now, Josh had never left the property before. It's a one acre piece of property. You should be able to find him on that property. Had never left it before, but we thought that maybe he wandered off. And I'll never forget It's like as clear as day to me today. I'll never forget walking along the river edge looking to see if I found a body floating in the water. Because all I can think about was that Josh went down to see mommy and actually slipped or something, hit his head and fell into the water. And I remember being scared to death. In fact, so much time had gone by, we actually called the local sheriff and they were sending the canine unit to help us find our son. Now you can imagine the tension in those moments. And fortunately for us, what happened was Josh actually was walking down the street trying to find his mom because he figured she wanted to walk. And as we went down this street, he was going up this street. And as we went up this street, he was going down this street. So we found Josh and we were so thankful. But let me say this to you. One thing I can promise you was in the middle of that, I never leaned over to Becky and said, hey, Becky, you know, we still have three kids. Like three out of four is not bad. You know what I'm saying? Like 75%, I mean, isn't that still pretty good odds, right? Never. Why? Because something, uh, when something has value and it's lost, it ultimately changes your focus. And for us that day, like our focus was changed. And what I want you to see here is lost people affect the heart of God the Father. And when something of value is lost, it changes your perspective. In fact, I would go as far as to say to you, I believe that the heart of God is distracted by lost people. I think it matters to him. 
And I believe like what Jesus is showing in this, in this story is that God has a laser-focused pursuit. He isn't distracted by the lesser of life, had a laser-focused pursuit on that which had value. So the first story, he speaks to men. He speaks to shepherds. Second story then, he does something that's unheard of. And I love this about Jesus, even controversial. What Jesus does is he begins to engage with women. And in that culture, like, you just didn't do that. Like, that was a a taboo, right? Men never talk to women in public, much less actually have a conversation around spiritual matters with them in public. But remember, indigenous, he's pulling them into, or going into their world and pulling them into this story. And here's what it says in verse 8, speaking to women. He says, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, then she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. And it says, In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in heaven in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who is is found, right? One sinner who repents and is found. All right, two more principles. Another principle is this. The value of what is lost will also determine the intensity of the search. So when something is lost of value, it will determine your intensity. So ladies, if he's speaking to ladies, if you lose a hairband, do you search for that like you would your diamond ring? And all of the ladies said, no, right? Right? Because what? Because it has value. A hairband, you just go to the drawer, pull it out, find another one, put it in your hair, right? But when it's a diamond ring, that's a totally different subject. And and here's what I'd say. The intensity of the search is gauged by the value of that lost item. When something of value is lost, your intensity for finding that grows. Now, just so what I want you to understand, one of the the, um, beliefs of the commentators, when, when you read through this, we don't know this for sure, but there's some speculation that when a, a young lady was young, what her, her father would do was, what would be, he'd give them some coins that would act as a dowry in the future. And in that culture, what ladies would do is they would actually take the coins, which I don't get this, but they would sew the coins into a headpiece so that when a man came a courting, you know what I'm saying, and was looking at her to marry her, when she was introduced to the man, she would wear this headpiece, and not only would he see her physical beauty, but then he would also see her tangible value and wealth. And so in the heart and mind of a woman, like to lose a coin that would show your worth and to show your value, it was extremely important to her. Because something of that was had value, right, uh, was lost, and therefore, because it meant so much to her, it gauged the intensity in which she would search after it. About two months ago, we were on a family reunion, and we were getting ready for a dinner with 150 family members. It was my wife's side of the family, and need I say more? Um, it was going to be a special night of just love and just amazingness. You know what I'm saying? Um, so I was looking forward to it. You know, I thought it was going to be a great night. You know, um, so we're getting ready. And all of a sudden, Becky's in the bathroom. She comes out screaming and crying. I can't believe it. I'm so stupid. I can't believe it. I'm like, oh, this isn't going to be good. Right. I'm like, what's going on here? 
Well, she went on to tell me that when she went to put her necklace on, she had a diamond pendant on the necklace that slid off the necklace and fell down the drain. What um, you need to know is that necklace was given to my wife three months earlier from my daughter, who when she was getting married, gave that to my wife as a way of letting her know how much she as my daughter values my wife. So you can imagine how sentimental and important that this, this piece was. So I did what any loving, amazing, awesome husband would do. I went to the cabinet and opened the doors of a rental, of a sink, of a rental property that was roughly 30 to 40 years old that had millions of people staying there and living there, using the sink with their nasty, disgusting grossness and washing themselves in this sink. And I went under the sink where there was this trap and began to unscrew the trap as I pulled it down and washed sludge, yes, sludge, and hair, which always makes me bitter and angry because my hair never gets stuck in the drain, right? Uh, hair, as I dumped it over and watched her necklace fall into the garbage can. Now, I was relieved. In fact, I was such a loving husband, I actually took it over to the sink and washed it for her before I gave it back to her. I did that because I know if she washed it, I'd be going down the other sink. You know what I'm saying? And then going to that sink. But here's the deal, right? Here, here's the point. The point of this is this. The value of what is lost it, it determines the, the intensity in which you search after that lost thing. Now, here's the deal. When you lose something of great value, you search for it with intensity. And that's why this story, this woman was willing to light a lamp, sweep every corner of the room, and frantically look until she found that lost thing. And here's what I want to point out, and I think we intuitively know this, that when you lose something of value, the most annoying person in the world is someone who's not willing to help you find the thing that you lost. Do you know what I'm saying? Like when I was growing up, I was a prolific loser of things. I did not say that I was a prolific loser. I said I was a prolific loser of things. Now, the other might be the case as well, but I did lose things. Like if it was not tied down or taped to me, it was my wallet I would lose, my keys, I lose my jackets, I lose my homework. Okay, I didn't do my homework, but I would lose a lot of, you know, I would lose things. And my mom inevitably would say this, and some of your parents probably said this to you, well, where did you leave it last? Do you know how annoying that is? Like parents, if you got young kids, don't ever say that, right? Because the most annoying person is the passive person who doesn't help you find the thing of value that you lost. But let me say it this way. Who becomes your new best friend when you've lost something of value? The person who's willing to get into the trenches with you and search for the thing that you lost. And I can't help but think that there's a spiritual principle here because what I believe is there's something that happens in the heart of God when he looks down at his children who have already been found and they join him on the pursuit of finding lost people. I think in many ways I could say it this way, you're God's new best friend. And I think he's pleased with us. And I believe, honestly, 
there's a special favor on our lives because our heart is beginning to beat with the heart of God. And what I love about God's heart is, while we might not see it and we might not know it, God sees and he hears exactly where every single person is in their life. God hears hears about the Garys who are crippled in life because of anxiety, who have just lost their job, and they don't know what to do in life. He hears about a, a young woman who, who um, her relationship with her husband is struggling and it's broken and she doesn't know where to turn. And God from heaven is looking down saying, Jessica, you have value. I see, I hear, I feel. And while the world around you might not see and hear and feel that, Jessica, I see it, I feel it, I hear it. And what God does is he compels us and commissions us and calls us as people to see that a lost thing of value needs to be found and he wants us to join him in that pursuit of finding those things. Somebody say amen, right? That's what he wants us to do. And here's what I want to say to us today. A purpose without people is not a purpose. It is a self-centric life. Because when God calls you to a purpose in your life, I promise you it always involves people. Noah did not build a canoe. Noah built an ark to save humanity. Moses did not cross the Red Sea alone. Moses crossed the Red Sea sea with the people of God. Nehemiah didn't build a fence around his backyard. He built built a wall for the people of God. Because a a purpose that is a biblical purpose will always include people in it. So we need to recognize that. In fact, I want to give you an illustration this morning that I think is going to help us a little bit. Because I really believe this. I believe this this picture here, this, this wheel, is going to be a picture of our lives. If you look at this, this wheel can represent the world. And what I want us to look at is the center here, this hub, represents the heart of God. I had to beat Shave Osler up for this front tire of his bike for this illustration, but I told him it was worth it, so help me with this because it's going to be worth it to us, okay? This represents the heart of God, and these spokes represent people. And what you'll notice by these spokes is the closer you get to the hub, the heart of God, the closer you get to what, everybody? And here's what I believe. I believe that the more you fall in love with God, the more your heart beats for the things of God, the more you see and love lost and broken people. And those baptism tanks today, what we talk about in the baptism class is just so important. Like baptism is literally the first step of obedience that God asks us to do. But it's not the last step. Because what happens for us as followers of Christ, when we're baptized, that's that first step of obedience. But ultimately, as we keep following after God, God, the purposes of God ought to become the calling of our lives. And if God's heart beats for people, then our heart, after a while, needs to get closer to God. And I'm just saying, as you spend time with him, guess what happens in your heart towards people? And so I really want to challenge you. See people through the eyes of God. In fact, here's what this story showed us. The first two stories is that heaven celebrates when the lost is found. 
And I don't know about you, man, but I want to party like the like Icky Shuffle. Remember that, guys, from football? Um, some of you older people know that, right? Like, I want to do this touchdown dance with, with the angels in heaven, right? Because, because the angels know this, that heaven and hell are real, and eternity is so very long. And anytime a soul is found, man, it's worth celebrating over. Okay, so the first two stories, Jesus captures their attention, and then he closes with this story to truly help us understand what he's getting at. It said, Jesus continued that there was a man who had two sons, The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And I want to pause for a moment because in that culture, if you were the firstborn son, two-thirds of the family inheritance became yours when the father died. One-third went to all the other children. And what this son was basically doing was saying to his dad, Dad, I wish you were dead. I just want my money. I wish you were dead. Can I have it now? So basically, he was rejecting his dad's influence and rejecting that relationship. Verse 13 goes on to say, not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, dad's wealth, inheritance, and he set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in what kind of living? There you go, man, wild living. In fact, what it tells us in this story, if you keep reading it, there was a famine in the land. This guy wasted all his money, lost it all, and then ended up having to go to work at a pig farm. We'll talk about that in a minute. It says in verse 16 that he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating at this pig farm, but no one gave him anything. And it goes on to say in verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And listen to the heart of God. He keeps going on saying, make me like one of your hired servants. And so it says here in scripture, so when he got up and he went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His father was looking for him. His father saw him when he was a long way off and was filled with compassion for him. And in in one of the most grace-filled moments in all of scripture, he did something that was undignified in that culture. And it says he ran to his son. Men didn't do that. But he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And I think it's a beautiful illustration of what God does for all of us. And in closing this morning, I want to ask you to think about three quick things. First of all, the lost and what Jesus is saying here was not defined by our location, but by our affiliation. What Jesus was trying to point out here is that geographically, the father knew all along where his son was, but relationally, there was a distance. And the father was longing to close that distance because his heart was where his son was in that relationship. Second thing is, What I want us to point out, and young people, listen to me. You heard it from the baptisms today. If you don't believe what I'm about to tell you, this is true. And the idea is this, is that the world promises you everything, but at the end of the day, gives you nothing. And take it from one, and a staff who would verify this in their own lives, take it from one, that when you chase after the things of the world, it always leaves you hurting, empty, and alone, and broken. And it never ultimately satisfies that void in your life that you're trying to satisfy. And when you look at this story, what you'll see is this son was willing to take his money, go to Vegas, basically, and bet it all on black 
and to throw his life away. And what he found, instead of finding satisfaction, what he found himself was in an empty pit of despair where death, disease, and decay were destroying his life. And what the world would say to you, right, is like, this, this will fill you, right? But the world always over-promises and under-delivers. And if the enemy had his way in your life, he would keep you hurting and alone and apart from God. But here's what I love, but God. But God's perspective is completely different. And what Jesus would want you to hear today is, if you're that individual, God is not mad at you. God is madly in love with you. And he wants a relationship with you. He loves you so much so that his picture is that of the father who from a long way off is looking to you, waiting for you to come back home because he wants to shower you with his love and with his grace, not as the religious leaders were showing here, condemnation and hatred and anger towards you. No, he wants to show you love. And I hope this morning you can feel that tension of what Jesus is bringing out because here's the last point this morning. The father is waiting for you to come home. He wants a relationship with you. And church, if you already have a relationship with God the Father, let me ask you this. What are you doing to clear the windshield of the vision of your life to gain that same heartbeat for people that Jesus is showing is reflected in the heartbeat of God the Father? Because I really believe this. Get this. Just this little bit of the heartbeat of God, and I think it will reorient your days and the way that you're aware of lost people around you, whether that's in your neighborhood, whether it's in your place of work, God sees them, he hears them, he knows them, and wants a relationship with them. He sees their brokenness, he feels their pain, and he's calling you to be a part of their lives. And if you're here today and you've never said yes to a relationship with Jesus, here's what I want you to know. That ocean of love, that, or that, that, that Niagara Falls of love that you saw earlier, that's the same kind of love that God has for you. And no matter what you've done in your life, God isn't mad at you. God is madly in love with you. And he was a God who was willing to come down to this earth and hang out with notorious sinners. Not just broken people, not just sinners, but people who were known for their brokenness. And to that I say amen because I know I'm a notorious sinner and I'm so thankful for his grace in my life and I hope you will accept his love for you today. Thank you for joining us and special thanks for those of you who give generously to make this ministry possible. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can also subscribe or share it with your friends. For more information about 360 Church, visit us at the360church.com.